Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the new Omicron strain of COVID sweeping Europe, Canada, and now beginning to explode in the US, combining with the flu season to forebode that within a few months we will pass the one million mark of American deaths from the pandemic. Joining us is Arthur Kaplan, Professor of Bioethics and Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at New York University's Langone Medical Center's Department of Population Health. He writes a regular column on bioethics for NBC.com and is a monthly commentator on bioethics and healthcare issues for WebMD slash Medscape and joins us to discuss his latest article at Barron's, No Nation Has Conquered COVID. We will assess the chances of the Supreme Court allowing Biden's employer mandate for vaccinations to stand now that a federal appeals court has upheld the Occupation Safety and Health Administration's authority to impose them. Then we'll examine the fleeting possibility that voting rights might be passed to head off the tsunami of voter suppression the Republicans are engaged in and whether reforms could be implemented in time to blunt the GOP's brazen assault on American democracy. Joining us is Charles Stewart, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at MIT, where his areas include congressional politics, elections, and American political development. He is currently the director of the Caltech MIT Voting Technology Project, and his books include Electing the Senate, Fighting for the Speakership, and Analyzing Congress. Then finally, we will speak with Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an, as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as Chief of Analytic Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence Counterterrorism Center and is currently a Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. He joins us to discuss his article, At the National Interest, When Being Pro-Israel Isn't Really, and how Israel's top military and intelligence leaders are now lamenting that Netanyahu and Trump's tearing up of the Iran nuclear deal was one of the worst strategic blunders in Israel's history. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, so background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org, or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Arthur Kaplan, Professor of Bioethics and Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at the NYU Langone Medical Center's Department of Population Health. He writes a regular column on bioethics for NBC.com and a monthly commentator on bioethics and health care issues at WebMD slash Medscape. And he has an article at Barron's, No Nation Has Conquered COVID. Welcome to Background Briefing, Arthur Kaplan. Thank you for having me. So uh, the White House mandate for private companies with more than 100 employees to get uh, vaccinated is back in business because of a ruling of a federal appeals court in Cincinnati on Friday. And OSHA, of course, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, will oversee this. Uh, but, of course, it's immediately being appealed by governors in South Carolina and Arkansas, etc. So where do we stand on that? Well, I think the mandate makes sense. I think there is no basis to battle it and win, even in a conservative Supreme Court. There's a long history, Ian, of the workplace 
being made safe by employer mandates. In other words, you put on protective gear for your ears. You wear a hard hat when you go to a construction site. There's tuberculosis testing required in many hospitals to protect you and me from outbreaks, and on and on it goes. The notion that somehow having this vaccination program in the middle of a plague is not a matter for an employer strikes me as nonsense. Of course it is. Of course it is. And what about the other ruling or the idea that the Biden administration has asked the Supreme Court to allow vaccine mandates for health care workers? How is that proceeding? That is even more desperately needed. I think when we're having these fights in another couple of weeks, we're going to be in the middle of a maelstrom of COVID due to this new variant. Take a look at Europe. Take a look at Canada. They are awash in COVID. We're sitting in a country where there are millions and millions of unvaccinated people. You want your healthcare workforce absolutely vaccinated. Private hospitals have insisted, like mine, that not only are you vaccinated, we're going to say you have to have a third shot. You've got to get the whole series uh, done. Uh, you don't want people bringing uh, COVID in to the hospital. You don't want the workforce out because they're sick. We've got to start being serious here. Again, I'll say it. Look at what's going on in Europe. Look at the level of outbreak. Some of those places are better vaccinated than we were. It's headed here. It's already here. It's going to be uh, basically a, a wildfire here. And to be having these debates about, well, I don't think we should vaccinate in the workplace or I don't think we should vaccinate our healthcare workers, it's like putting a gun to our head. So let's talk a little about your article at Barron's, Arthur Kaplan, No Nation Has Conquered COVID. Uh, your co-authors are from different countries around the world. And in your article, you're trying to get a, a sense of what strategies have worked in what countries and what strategies have not worked. Right. So let's start with, I mean, the fact of the matter is that we've lost over 800,000 people in this country. And China, where the pandemic began, even though we don't know about the origins yet, and we never will because the Chinese are not being cooperative, but nevertheless, they claim only a few thousand deaths. We've got 800,000. So... Would you say that China has handled it the best? Well, they were able to institute lockdowns and quarantine and enforce them. And that strategy did hold down the number of deaths. But basically, every time they try to reopen, COVID pops back. So perhaps they handled it better, but with a huge economic cost and a huge, if you will, freedom of mobility cost, it's at the level that we're just not going to see it in Europe or the U.S. or Canada. That's not going to happen. Um, I think what we found is that some nations tried lockdowns, not just China, Australia, New Zealand. And as soon as they open back up, wham, here comes the virus or a new variant to undercut, say, in Australia, a year's worth of efforts. Um, I think that says and I'll just summarize, I think, what we learned by looking all around the world, you need to have a four-part strategy to fight COVID. Vaccination is key. Isolation is key. A missing part for America has been testing. You've got to test every day. Frequently, we don't have those tests. Countries that do can do a much better job about keeping schools and workplaces open because you don't go there with a positive test. You know, you've got to have more testing. And I think the other big uh, arm here that's emerging, we need antiviral medicines. People keep talking about antibodies or ivermectin or something, but we do need a treatment. They're coming down the road pretty quick, uh, real antiviral pills. We better start buying those and making sure they're available in large amounts cheaply, which we're not doing. So I think no single strategy has worked. You need a four-part strategy, as I say, across the board, to really get uh, this thing to get down to tolerable levels, uh, if not go away, at least to be able to live with it. And no country's done it. And again, I'm speaking with Arthur Kaplan, who is a professor of bioethics and the director of the Division of Medical Ethics at New York University's Langone Medical Center's Department of Population Health. He writes a regular column on bioethics for NBC.com and is a monthly commentator on bioethics and health care issues for WebMD slash Medscape. 
And he has an article at Barron's, No Nation Has Conquered COVID. And what about the, this new drug, Paxlovid? Is that promising? Very promising. Even at 30 or 40% efficacy rates, anything that can stop you from being in the hospital, I think you have to take it within five days of symptoms. I think we're going to see some other antivirals that are better. That has to be part of the toolkit. So again, vaccinate, test, use isolation. Don't go to work if you're sick. Don't go to school if you're sick. Don't go anywhere, in fact, if you have symptoms. And then make sure you've got a big supply of these antivirals ready to roll. That's the strategies that we need. And if you looked at the U.S., pretty good on vaccination availability, although we stink on getting enough people to do it, and we keep fighting about whether you should do it, which makes no sense. Testing, terrible, just terrible. People can't find tests. They line up for tests. We don't have nearly enough testing, and I'm talking about home tests in your house, not standing in line at the drugstore or some city-operated test site. Uh, isolation, nope, people don't stay home when they're sick. They're not treating that seriously. And we're not buying the supply of those drugs, like the one you just mentioned, in bulk right now, which we should be. So just to, to touch on Omicron, the new variant that's ravaging the UK and Europe and Canada, you mentioned, and it'll soon be doing that's the same here. Does it still apply that it's virulent and more contagious than any other strain, but only one person has died? Is that still the, the statistics? Yeah, I would say anybody who comments yet on the severity is not really being responsible because we don't know. It's too new. It's hard to tell. It looks like it's not as severe because most cases of COVID are mild. They don't uh, make people sick, but we want to know, is it really uh, going to harm older people? Is it going to harm people with comorbidities like obesity or immune diseases or those undergoing cancer treatment or babies who don't have much in the way of uh, protection through uh, uh, birth. They, they have to acquire immunity. So uh, a little tough to say, but I, I will say this. Even if it's relatively mild, it still has the potential to put a lot of people, as flu does, in the hospital, overwhelm the hospital system, even if you're there just trying to recover from a severe bout, let's say, of either uh, Omicron or this, uh, let's not forget, flu season, which is taking off in many parts of the U.S. at the same time. So destroying the healthcare system puts everybody at risk, and I think that's my biggest worry, Ian. And do you think that this winter is going to be worse than last? I do. I think that, that Omicron is more contagious. More people are going to get it. <clears throat> we haven't protected enough with the boosters to make sure that people do just get mild uh, symptoms if and when they catch it. It seems like the three-shot uh, thing is the way to go, and I think we're at 17% in the U.S. Flu is here. Very few people have gotten flu shots. I hope everybody listening does. You don't want the two diseases together. That could prove to be quite a lethal combination as well. So I'm really worried that we're going to be actually worse this year than we were last. So do you think then it won't be that long before we reach the million mark? Yes, I do. Sadly, I think we're going to cross that line in a couple of months. And I think, uh, again, if we don't get pushing on these vaccines right now, third shots, getting three shots, it's too late by another week or two because then the virus will be here. And even if you got the shots, you wouldn't build up immunity fast enough. So right now, the rest of December is the crucial period. Get the three shots. Make sure you do that. And... If you're sick, stay home, and if you're going to be around vulnerable people, test. Make sure you know you're not positive before you go visit Grandma. And Christmas, of course, is a, this coming week. People will be traveling and visiting family. Yeah, that's what really bothers me. I think the Omicron virus is saying, sign me up for a plane seat. I'll be with you. Didn't we just see people in Congress who run airlines saying they don't need masks? I mean... How can we be retreating in the face of what is demonstrably occurring in Europe? The lesson is right in front of us, how fast this thing spreads and takes off. And here we sit in the U.S. with airline executives saying, eh, I don't think you need to wear a mask, coughing, and then showing up, what, a day or two later positive. <laughs> and we've got people fighting about 
should the healthcare workforce get vaccinated? I mean, I hate to say it, but are we that stupid? Well, just in closing, is the Supreme Court that stupid? Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope not. I hope not. And, you know, there's a long tradition legally trying to protect people's health, using government authority to do it, all the way from uh, smallpox outbreaks and typhoid Mary down to the present day. I understand the liberty arguments. I understand we're all sick of this virus, but the way to get ahead of it isn't to throw down the weapons we've got and just say, have at it, virus. Well, Arthur Kaplan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, and Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. Thank you, and same to you, Art. And again, I've been speaking with Arthur Kaplan, who is Professor of Bioethics and Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at the NYU Nangon Medical Center's Department of Population Health. He writes a regular column on bioethics for NBC.com and a monthly commentator on bioethics and healthcare issues for WebMD slash Medscape. And he has an article at Barron's, No Nation Has Conquered COVID. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the fleeting possibility that voting rights might be passed to head off the tsunami of voter suppression the Republicans are engaged in. I don't need no doctor Cause I know what's in me I don't need no doctor no Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Charles Stewart, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at MIT, where his area includes congressional politics, elections, and American political development. He's currently the director of the Caltech MIT Voting Technology Project, and his books include Electing the Senate, Fighting for the Speakership, and Analyzing Congress. Welcome to Background Briefing, Charles Stewart. A pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Charles. And we all remember President, uh, former President Trump shaking down Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, and asking for 11,000-plus votes, just one more than he lost by to Joe Biden. But now uh, Congressman Jody Heights, who's a ardent Trumpster, is running for the Secretary of State position. Uh, I believe that the leg- state legislature in Georgia is also moved to have more control over the counting of votes and the certification of votes. So there's at least 10 Republican candidates running for secretaries of state at the moment who have expressed skepticism of the 2020 election results, and many of them are spouting the stop the steal dogma. So at this point, do you think the Republicans could win this election even before the first vote is cast through in 2022? Uh, they could win the, uh, the House, surely, before one vote is cast due to gerrymandering. So these other efforts, which I want to talk to you about, if you combine them all together, it seems like a foregone conclusion that the next election will be rigged and that the Republican Party has decided to cheat rather than compete. Right. Um, I mean, that's a that's a common fear. And um, I think there's a lot of things to be worried about with these with these um, developments. But I don't think that um, I would agree that, um, you know, the Republicans get to win because um, they potentially we don't know yet. You have to win the election, but they potentially could get elected Trumpsters. Um, um, we're a ways from that. And in fact, I think in the short term, the bigger concerns rather than um, Republicans stealing elections um, is the continued, um, you know, kind of what the continued big lie propaganda is doing to undermine um, confidence in the electoral system and to goad on uh, politicians who would run to change state laws to um, make it harder to vote and and perhaps in the future to make it easier for a um, an unscrupulous partisan hack to um, swing an election a particular way. 
But it seems in American elections that the Republicans have an advantage to some extent in as much as they're always able to mobilize their voters and get everyone out. And they believe, they seem to be afraid of the demographics, the growing Hispanic and Asian American and African American vote. And it would seem that given that disadvantage, that mobilizes them to getting literally every last vote out. And on the Democratic side, it seems more often than not that the the issue really is about turnout and how to inspire an apathetic Democratic elector to come out. And obviously Obama did that in 2008, and Biden got 7 million more votes than Trump, even though 78% of Republicans believe that Biden is an illegitimate president. Right. So is right. that, from your research, is that a, a common kind of fact in American politics, that one party is better able to mobilize all of their voters, where the other one has a natural majority but can't seem to perennially inspire its people, particularly in midterms? Right. That um, Well, I mean, that, that tends to be a... Um part of a folk wisdom, but I think that it overlooks the actual electoral history. Um, I mean, well, but before getting to that, I mean, it, it is a certain folk wisdom. And I think it's it um, part, part of what you said, I think, um, is true um, um, and, and asymmetrically true, which is to say that fear is a great motor, motivator. And these days, Republican voters are more fearful that their America is being taken away from them, um, particularly the, the most hardcore Republican voters. Um, but it's also the case that we've seen fear, we have seen fear on the Democratic side mobilize voters in places like Georgia and North Carolina over the last several years as um, the Republican Party has tried to double down on, on, on these restrictive um, pieces of legislation. Um, um, you know, Stacey Abrams didn't win the election in Georgia in um, in 18, but she came very, very close. And um, that was, you know, a large part because of mobilization of African-Americans and and um, liberals and other um, residents of cities who are worried about Republicans um, who are quite frankly afraid that Republicans are going to try to um, reinstitute um, old you know, Jim Crow South. And so, I mean, it, it does cut both ways. And um, yes, I mean, Republicans are of the demographic that um, might make them easier to turn out to vote. But um, just imagining that, um, you know, Republicans are good at winning elections and Democrats are not overlooks, you know, the results of, you know, midterm elections like in, you know, 2018 and 2006 um, and, and the rest. And so I think it's, um, it's more complicated than that. Um, and fi- the final thing I will say is I talk to a lot of Democrats who are who are afraid about what um, Republicans are up to. And, um, you know, as we go into the 2022 election, I think that that's going to be um, a factor that's going to mobilize vote, um, Democratic voters in places where they might have just um, laid down and um, rolled over and just, you know, assumed that, well, you know, the president's party loses the midterm. There's not a whole lot we can do about do about it. Um, I think we're going to see Democrats fighting back pretty hard. Um, and you know, they're going to be fighting in Texas. They're going to be fighting in Georgia. Whether they win or not, I mean, that's another question. But they're going to be fighting at a level that we've never seen Democrats. We haven't seen Democrats um, compete in 20, 30 years. And again, I'm speaking with Charles Stewart, the Distinguished Professor of Political Science at MIT, where his areas areas include congressional politics, elections, and American political development. He is currently the director of the Caltech MIT Voting Technology Project, and his books include Electing the Senate, Fighting for the Speakership, and Analyzing Congress. Well, obviously, Charles Stewart, efforts efforts to re-level the playing field, if that's the right way to put it, given how the Republicans are tilting the playing field with multi-layered voter suppression, with uh, gerrymandering, meaning that before the vote is cast, they could win the House, then Election Day voter suppression, and then the ability of Republican legislatures to count and certify the vote, and if they don't like it, they can change it. And then you've got this other operation at the level of the precincts themselves, the voting booths, where uh, a lot of traditionally neutral 
poll workers are being harassed and quitting in droves and being replaced by partisan stop-the-steal types. So given that that's the condition, is it incumbent upon President Biden or somebody in the Democratic Party to make this an issue of you're voting to save democracy itself? Would that be a winning motivator? Well, I think it's incumbent upon well, it's incumbent both upon Democratic leaders to point out that Democrats need to be active in protecting the interest of Democratic candidates. Um, but it's also the um, the responsibility of Democrats to um, you know pull up their socks and be involved in the process as well. So, for instance, there's been a lot of attention to um, a recent um, um, a recent um, big lie supporter in Pennsylvania winning a county, um, you know, winning, winning a county election position. Um, well, it turns out, in, you know, in Pennsylvania, um, um, there is a Democrat and a Republican elected in parallel to every election position in the state, um, um, at least at the county level and the precinct level. And so in that precinct, I am hoping that the Democrats have elected a Democrat who's just as um, um, fierce in defending Democratic interests as the Republicans apparently have been in electing a Republican to defend Republican interests. And so um, Democrats at all levels need to be attentive to what's going on. They need to mobilize. They need to be um, be attuned to actually how elections work. And, and the final thing I guess I would say is you mentioned a number of things that are of concern, um, 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 suppressive laws, um, gerrymandering, um, um, Trumpsters, um, big lie people running for election elected positions, state legislatures trying to reach in, um, et cetera. All of those are not the same thing, and they operate at different levels, and there are different ways um, some of them are more alarming in the short term, some of them are more alarming in the long term. And I think one of the things that Democrats and people allied with Democrats need to be attentive to is, say, the difference between the problems attending gerrymandering and the problems related to the certification of votes um, or the problems related to partisanship and polling places. Those are very different things that require very different solutions and different types of attention from um, concerned citizens. Well, the solutions, uh, though, at the level of the Congress, particularly in the Senate, are hanging in the balance, aren't they, Charles? I mean, uh, obviously, Biden was not able to, with all the jawboning uh, that he did with Senator Manchin, he wasn't able to get his bill back better, bill passed before the uh, Christmas recess, and its fate is somewhat unknown, uh, particularly uh, given that, you know, the child tax credit will expire and others and Manchin has not given any, any indication of when you know he keeps changing his mind about what he objects to and when it might be passed and in what form and probably quite whittled down in January or even in February if at all so that's the fate of Bill Back Better but now the assumption is that maybe they can focus on the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act and Manchin's own voting rights bill do you see that as a possibility they've only got a few days but if they don't get that done, then everything that we're talking about is then up for grabs, isn't it? I mean, well, even if they do get it done, I mean, and this is something I think again, where the 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 rhetoric and the and the and kind of the lofty rhetoric of people who support these bills um, diverges from the realities of administering elections. That election administration doesn't turn turn on a dime, and. Um, and you make you change a law, especially at the federal level. It's a long time until you actually get implementation at the state and local level. Look, I mean, there was the National Voter Registration Act was passed in 1994. had all sorts of had all sorts of requirements about uh, voter registration. There are still states not implementing the National Voter Registration Act. Um, and so, even if even if the original HR one had passed back in the summer it would not have affected the election of 2022. It may have affected the election of 2024. And so that's why I think that, yes, um, you know, Democrats may, you know, Joe Biden might may want to give a push to get these bills passed. Um, 
And, um, you know, Democrats certainly may want to, to push these bills. But if people are concerned about the elections of 2022 and 2024, um, um, Democratic, the outcome is not going to be affected by the passage of these bills, even if they even if they pass. It will take years to implement. And this is on top of what we know to be um, likely lawsuits that will tie these bills up in court for years. So that's why I that's why at the bottom line, my 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 advice to Democrats these days is to, yes, be concerned about these bills. Um, it, um, you know, the, they represent important gains. They represent things that we may want to do. But um, man, if you want to win the 2022 election, you need to raise money. You need to mobilize. You need to register voters on the, under the rules that we have right now, because you cannot count on these bills being implemented fast enough to make a difference. And in terms of the state legislatures in key swing states, Republican-controlled legislatures, changing the rules so that they get to count and certify the vote, and if they don't like it, they're going to overturn it. And the, the and the Republicans in Wisconsin want to take over elections altogether, and we know how partisan they are. I understand that you don't think that that necessarily the end of it. In other words, that the courts aren't necessarily going to allow that kind of push to take place. Is that is that your view? Well, I guess my, my view is that um, legislatures taking over the administration of elections, including the sort of certification of elections, um, is, um, is the least likely of the various um, things that Democrats have to worry about um, actually coming to pass. Um, and the reason is that um, the worst fear, well, there's two, there, there's, there, there's one big reason, which is that many of these proposals are clearly unconstitutional under federal and state constitutions. Um, and we're all, you know, we've seen courts um, right after the 2020 election, um, you know, being very strict about hewing to constitutional limits. We just recently saw a, um, a, a conservative appeals court in Texas um, uphold um, or rather strike down actions of the attorney general in Texas that were that were um, that were a big overreach. And so we're you know, we need to remember things like separation of powers in the states. Legislatures are not administrative bodies. Um, they you know, they delegate to administrative bodies and then they have to walk away. If state legislatures want to overturn the results of a properly conducted election, they might want to do that. There may be, in fact, they may even pass resolutions to do it. But um, I can't imagine a Supreme Court in this country um, at the state level, even a conservative one, putting up with that. And one of the things I certainly cannot imagine a state Supreme Court putting up with, even a conservative one, is seeing a clean election in the state in which a Democrat wins in which the state legislature passes a resolution to overturn the results purely because they didn't like the result after the fact. Um, there's all sorts of federal Supreme Court precedent, state Supreme Court precedents, which say you go into elections with the rules that you have and you can't change them once you, if you don't like, if you don't like the results at the end. And so now this is not to say, this is, <laughs> I, this is not to say that, um, I think we should look the other way at what um, you know some legislators in Wisconsin and other places want to do. I think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous for um, for a, a load of reasons. Um, you know, it harasses um, good election officials. You've mentioned that it it, it 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 punishes morale among people actually running elections, and it continues this um, um, what can only be called a lie. Um, that um, elections somehow are fundamentally broken in states like, um, you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, and, and where uh, and where not. And I think that actually the biggest concern of, say, state legislatures wanting to take over elections is not that they will overturn a legitimate election, but they will keep wearing down um, Republicans in those states to the point that um, um, it will no longer be three quarters of Republicans in a state who believe that a Democratic president is illegitimate. 
it would be all the Republicans in the state believing that a Democratic um, president is illegitimate. And, um, you know, it could get worse than it is right now. Well, indeed, just in closing, the University of Chicago did a poll recently that among the three, what, 78 percent of the Republicans who believe that Biden's an illegitimate president and that Trump won, within that body, about 22 million Americans believe that violence may be necessary to restore the rightful place of Donald Trump. And he's certainly capable of encouraging violence. So it could be a lot worse than just the technicalities that we're talking about. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, I'm so insistent that people who are concerned about the state of democracy really pay attention. I mean, this is pay attention to the, the moving parts of the various threats of democracy that we're concerned about and to go after the ones that we should really be concerned about. And you know, we have seen violence. And it's not, I mean, January 6th is the best example, but we saw the storming of the Michigan state legislature about you know, different, you know, different reasons, but um, we very well could have seen violence um, at state legislatures last year as well. And we are, um, we're seeing threats against election officials right now for doing their jobs. And, you know, there are real material threats at the moment. And um, yes, again, be concerned about, you know, you know, be concerned about national legislation, be concerned about the direction in which the country is going. But there are, you know, there are some material things that we need to worry about and that we need to make sure that those things, we don't lose sight of those things. Well, Charles Stewart, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Um, thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Charles Stewart, who's a distinguished professor of political science at MIT, where his areas include congressional politics, elections, and American political development. He is currently the director of the Caltech MIT Voting Technology Project, and his books include Electing the Senate, Fighting for the Speakership, and Analyzing Congress. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how Israel's top military and intelligence leaders are now lamenting that Netanyahu and Trump's tearing up of the Iran nuclear deal was one of the worst strategic blunders in Israel's history. Well, I met you on election night As we cried over our beer Nothing you could do would cheer me up We broke up later that year Well, how come you and I aren't winners? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as Chief of the Analytic Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center, and is currently a professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. And he has an article at the National Interest, When Being Pro-Israel Isn't Really. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Pillar. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's obviously some acrimony now being expressed by Trump to an Israeli journalist who's written a fairly gossipy, explosive book, but <laughs> when apparently <laughs> Prime Minister Netanyahu congratulated Joe Biden on his victory, Trump remarked, F him. But I'd like to start out, uh, obviously there's some more uh, revelations from that book that we could talk about, but my understanding is that the Israeli assessment of when Iran would have enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon would indicate, at least the ones that I've heard over the last six months or a year or so, would indicate that Iran is pretty close to that now, if, it not, if not having passed that threshold. What's your understanding? Well, I don't think there's any dispute that the, the so-called breakout time, the, the time that would be, be required 
for Iran to build a nuclear weapon if it were to decide to suddenly make a race toward doing that has uh, reduced drastically from the approximately one year or so that it was when the nuclear agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was fully in effect uh, between 2015 and 2018, and where it is now, um, which I think by most expert estimates, it's, it's down to, to a matter of uh, a month or so, uh, you know, possibly even less. Now we ought to emphasize, you know, this this is a an estimate based on, uh, you know, how long it would take to fabricate one weapon with the fissile material that they've partially enriched so far. That says nothing about, you know, actual decisions uh, that have been made. And as Director Burns of the CIA uh, mentioned in a public statement not too long ago. Uh, there's no indication that the Iranians have yet done that. But but on that sort of estimative matter of how how far along the Iranian nuclear program has gone, I, I don't think there's any disagreement between, uh, you know, what the Israeli analysts you cite are mentioning or what analysts here in the United States are saying. So it seems that Prime Minister Netanyahu played a kind of, to use the Shakespearean analogy, played a kind of Iago role whispering sort of poisonous ideas into Trump's ears. But Trump himself was predisposed to tearing up the Iran nuclear agreement because he was touting himself as the great negotiator when he turned out to be a complete amateur and a total catastrophe. But nevertheless, he was beating up Obama and making that forced distinction. So again, I guess this is really about the disastrous tenure of Trump, is it not? How did the American people ever elect somebody so ill-qualified and mentally unfit to become president? Well, as it relates to this Iranian nuclear issue, I think there are two dynamics that were involved with regard to Trump. One, and we saw it on so many other things like the Affordable Care Act and other domestic as well as foreign policies, uh, was his compulsion to do the opposite of whatever his predecessor Barack Obama did. And uh, the Iranian nuclear accord was unquestionably one of the bigger achievements in foreign policy by Obama. So in, in the view of well, not just Trump, but Republicans in general, it had to go. Uh, the other dynamic is one that I think is underscored by that quote you alluded to in this recent interview in which uh, Trump has sort of turned against Netanyahu. And that was it was all about in in, in Trump's uh, eyes, a matter of political backscratching between him and Netanyahu and between Republicans and the Likud and in Israel. And uh, so, you know, as, as Trump said in that interview, he thought he had leaned over backwards to try to uh, help Bibi as much as he could politically uh, in Israel, although that didn't help him uh, stay in power. And now Trump felt, uh, you know, he wasn't getting his, his back scratched in return even over something as trivial as, as Trump puts it, uh, uh, you know, Netanyahu made a congratulatory phone call to Biden. Uh, so, you know, both of those dynamics doing the opposite of whatever Obama did and just in the most crude and callous sort of way, trying to appeal for uh, votes to what he saw as the pro-Israel lobby. Um, neither one of those was in the interest either of U.S. foreign policy, certainly, or in the interest of uh, the security of Israel. So there's an awakening underway in Israel, but presumably the people that you quote in your article at the National Interest, uh, Paul Pillar, when being pro-Israel isn't really, you quote how so many of the top Israeli intelligence officials and military officials like Major General Isaac Ben Israel, uh, former chief of Israeli Air Force Intelligence, saying that the efforts of former Prime Minister Netanyahu to persuade the Trump administration to quit the nuclear agreement have turned out to be the worst strategic mistake in Israel history. Former chief of Israeli military intelligence, Amos Yadlin, says what postponed Iranian progress towards achieving nuclear weapons was the nuclear agreement, not military action. And because of the very wrong policy taken by the state of Israel, Iran, of course, is now much further on. And as we were speculating, they may even have enough fissile material for a bomb. Danny Citronovitz, uh, former chief of Israeli intelligence's Israel military intelligence's Iran branch, called the withdrawal from the JCPOA a catastrophe. Former head of civilian intelligence agency Mossad, Tamir Pardo, 
called the withdrawal a tragedy and Israel's government pushing the United States for this withdrawal was a strategic mistake. Former Mossad head Efrain Havali has referred to Netanyahu's efforts to torpedo the accord of, quote, rhetorically saying, what's the point of casting an agreement that distances Iran from the bomb? And the former head of Shin Bet, Ami Ayalon, said the JCPOA was the best option. So is that resonating in Israel? Um, to some extent, but, you know, it, it res- maybe resonates as much as retired uh, former senior security officials here in the United States tend to resonate in our political system, which is to say not a whole lot. And, you know, we, we should underscore, Ian, that, that all the people you quoted, and, and there, there are others we could cite as well, are ones who devoted their professional lives to the security of Israel. Uh, they are now retired, so they're politically, you know, a little freer to to speak out. Um, but you have a a political milieu in in Israel that certainly on anything related to Iran uh, has become, you know, very emotional and very uh, unidirectional in a way that pretty much drowns out those words of wisdom. So, you know, there's there's some resonance uh, on, on in, in pockets of, you know, more reasonable reflection uh, in, in Israel commentary. But uh, the dominant uh, political direction is, is, is the same under Bennett as it was under Netanyahu, which is to oppose just instinctively and reflexively any kind of constructive diplomacy with Iran. And again, I'm speaking with Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as Chief of Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia, and also head of the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center, and is currently a Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. And he has an article at the National Interest when being pro-Israel isn't really. So if emotions override rationality, I guess to some extent the influence of the U.S. in terms of its ties to APAC and the pro-Israel lobby largely is, of course, the evangelical Christians. And (laughs) by the way, Trump in his uh, interview uh, with the Israeli journalist Barak Ravid said, quoting from Ravid's new book, Trump said, I'll tell you, the evangelical Christians love Israel more than the Jews in this country. It used to be that Israel had absolute power over Congress. And today, I think it's the exact opposite. And I think Obama and Biden did that. And after implying that the Jews who vote for Democrats hate Israel, Trump then went on to say, I mean, you look at the New York Times. The New York Times hates Israel, hates them. And they're Jewish people that run the New York Times. I mean, the Salzberger family. Of course, it happens that they're not Jewish, but Trump not necessarily somebody that uh, deals in facts. So that unholy alliance, though, of the Christian right, who are totally in love with Israel for the most sort of theologically uh, sick reason, which is that they're waiting for Armageddon and Israel will trigger Armageddon, and you and I and everybody that we know will burn in the lake of fire while all these Southern Baptists get raptured up to heaven, and then heaven becomes a sort of domain of uh, Southern Baptists, in which case I think I'd actually prefer Dante's hell. I mean, how did that happen? I mean, I know Shamir basically thought that these were the most reliable of the Americans to support Israel, but it is such a strange alliance, and even Trump's casual but clearly real anti-Semitism uh, reflects that. Yeah, well, among all the other bigotry and, and uh, uh, sloppy statements of Trump, I mean, the one thing he did perhaps get right is that the the bigger source of political support for Israeli government policy in U.S. politics is today more with the Christian evangelicals and specifically with the what you refer to the dispensationalist uh, theology, uh, according to which we might add that, uh, you know, any Jews who don't convert to become Christians would all go to hell, too. So 
um, that, that is a rather perverse basis, perverse basis on which to uh, base any thinking about Israeli security. Uh, I think polling data here in the United States, uh, you know, has indicated that if you uh, if you're talking about American Jewry, um, there is much greater support for a rational political diplomatic approach to these sorts of problems, uh, including a lot of support for uh, you know, reinstating the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, much more so than uh, among the, the, the Christian evangelical side of the uh, uh, right half of the political spectrum here in the United States, which is in a much more reflexive, primitive sort of way, saying, well, if we're in favor of the state of Israel for those theological reasons that you, you just mentioned. Um, you know, again, this is all a statement about the direction of American politics, which has affected so many other things in a big way. And um, this sort of issue involving security issues in the Middle East is is a tail that's getting wagged by that big political dog. Well, on the other end, if you will, apart from the, the Christian end of timers that support Israel, you do have people like the former heads of the CIA, Leon Panetta and retired General David Petraeus, along with Michelle Flournery, the former Pentagon official, and uh, Jane Harmon and Dennis Ross. They're all, they've written a joint letter urging that the military threat that the U.S. poses to Iran is the key reason why the Iran nuclear program has expanded, and they don't want to take the military threat off the table, not that Biden is necessarily taking that off the table. So, what do you make of that pushback? Oh, that, that was a very unfortunate statement. Um, if our objective is to avoid Iran building a nuclear weapon, then military threats, threats of military attack, are one of the more counterproductive things we could do besides an actual attack. You know, Iran has considered and sort of wavered back and forth on this issue of whether it needs a nuclear deterrent. We know they've worked on the bomb in the past. And then back when the JCPOA was being negotiated several years ago, they clearly made, uh, they, the Iranian leadership, a strategic decision uh, that it would be better for Iran uh, to be a non-nuclear weapon state that had sanctions reduced and was fully integrated in the international community than to be a nuclear armed pariah with all the sanctions and isolation that went, went uh, with that. But you know they could revoke that decision again they could they could um uh, decide especially with the hardliners in power in tehran that they really do need a nuclear deterrent um you know th they look around and uh, they see what's happened say to uh the kim regime in north korea and what happened to uh the Gaddafi regime in libya and they say what's the what's the difference well the difference is uh kim had a nuclear weapon uh it it Again, they are they are still um, in a position where they could go either way on future decisions, and I think Director Burns is is correct that they haven't yet made a decision to build a bomb. But uh, any any debates that took place in Tehran as to whether that decision ought to be looked at again, well, again, the worst thing we could do is threaten attack. That's only going to strengthen the voices in Tehran and say we need that nuclear deterrent and we need it fast. So do you think, though, we earlier discussed the possibility of a kind of wake-up in Israel itself from its top military intelligence leaders pointing out the boneheaded mistake that Trump and Netanyahu made in cancelling the Iran nuclear agreement, and now Iran's on the threshold, at least in terms of fissile material for a bomb. In terms of the other American intelligence leaders, Panetta and Petraeus and... Jane Harmon and Dennis Ross, et cetera, and APAC itself, are they likely to have a wake-up call about the fact that they've been supporting West Bank settlements and these are a massive drain on Israel's own security? Its military are forced to protect these settlers in the middle of, of Palestinian lands and not only do they, of course, exacerbate hatred and tensions between these two cohabitants of the same land, which Israel basically—I have no idea what the Israeli right, their end game is, because they've never really stated it. But they seem to think that at some point or other the Palestinians are just going to go away, and that's clearly not happening. So, what about that dimension, which you mentioned in your article, Paul Pillar? 
at the national interest when being pro-Israel isn't really? Yeah, well, I cited in the article there was some analysis at an independent Israeli think tank called Molag, which does very serious work. They're, they're completely independent of the government. Uh, and they, they looked at this and, and uh, provided uh, the analysis that supports the conclusion that you just mentioned, that the whole settlement uh, project in the West Bank and the constitutes not an increase to Israeli security, but a drain on Israeli security, because you have the Israeli defense forces that have to be uh, preoccupied with protecting the settlers and dealing with all of the, the mess that takes place there. And now, just most recently, the Israeli leaders have recognized you know, how much settler violence there is going on. There's been a real surge of it against the Palestinian population and recognizing they can't just keep looking the other way on that. that that's that's all a big drain in terms of resources and attention uh, on on the Israeli security establishment. So if you're if you're really interested in the security of Israel and not in playing out, you know, religiously based objectives about uh, seizing and, and holding certain territory that you consider to be yours, but instead you're really considered with security, then then the whole West Bank colonization and settlement project is, is a big mistake too. Um, but, you know, that's another one of the things that in the political milieu uh, that is very much dominated by the right in Israel, um, uh, that I don't see anybody really walking that back in a politically significant way. You've got over, you know, what what is the number now? About half a million, uh, you know, Israeli settlers in the West Bank. Uh, that's not going to be walked back anytime soon. But the, the 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 sad news for Israelis and those who are concerned about Israeli security is that's a drain on the country's security. It's not a contribution to it. Right. But just in closing, uh, Paul Pillar, the current Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, he is in coalition with an Islamist party, and. This Israeli Arab party joined in the Naftali right-wing coalition because of the lack of security that they have within within Israel itself in these communities. And I think the riots that took place with Jewish vigilantes attacking uh, Israeli Arab communities was a real wake-up call. And it, the security dimensions that it indicates have to be alarming for Israeli security officials. Yeah, well, you may be right that this one, uh, we should call it a breakaway uh, Arab-Israeli party, which broke away from the other uh, Arab-Israeli parties to join the Bennett-led coalition. Their presence in the coalition may indeed have, uh, you know, made enough of a marginal difference such that the acknowledgement of the settler violence and a declared intention to do something about it that I cited, what that we've been hearing about uh, from Israeli leaders just over the last few days, that, that might have made a difference, you know, having, having that party uh, in the coalition. Well, Paul Pillar, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Paul Pillar, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia, and previously he served as Chief of Analytic Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia, and also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center, and is currently a Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies, and he has an article at the National Interest, When Being Pro-Israel Isn't Really. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. 
Bye for now. One more light goes on